Welcome to Coastal Currents with Aaron Reed, your journey into discovering the amazing people and wonderful happenings in and around the Cothet region. Since her days as Powell River's first youth ambassador in 1994, Aaron has continuously been involved in our community. Her love of the Cothet region and her understanding of the importance of connecting to the people living around you inspired this podcast. Coastal Currents is a no-holds-barred look at what's happening in our neighborhoods. But more importantly, it's about the people who live, work, and play here. Insightful interviews, frank conversations, and often hilarious discussions of issues, ideas, and people that matter to you. This is Coastal Currents. Here's Aaron. Welcome to Coastal Currents. I'm your host, Aaron Reed. In mid-July, Todd Caldicott joined me in the studio. Todd is a clinical herbalist and practitioner of Ayurveda, with 25 years of clinical and teaching experience. He has both practiced and taught internationally, bringing students to Nepal to study classical Ayurveda, and in 2014 was a visiting Mitchell Scholar at Bastyr University. He is a registered professional member of the American Herbalists Guild and the National Ayurvedic Medical Association, and current director of the Dogwood School of Botanical Medicine. He is the author of many articles, research papers, and books, including Food is Medicine, Ayurveda in Nepal, and Ayurveda, the Divine Science of Life. Apart from practicing and teaching, Todd has a diverse background in the field of herbal medicine, which includes product development and botanical research in the non-timber forest products industry. Todd moved to Powell River in 2019 on his little farm in Wildwood, which now serves as the base for his clinical practice, herbal dispensary, and classroom. Get to know Todd Caldicott. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. (laughs) So you were okay starting with a quick game of this or that? Sure. Let's do it. (laughs) Okay. Second chance at love or second chance for your career? Second chance for love. Art projects or science projects? Art project. Hamburgers or hot dogs? Hamburgers. Cherished or respected? Oh, that's tricky. That's like a both one, hey? Yeah, well, I think a lot of them are are that. I think uh, if you're respected, you're cherished. Oh, that's that's a good take on that. I like that. Misunderstood after death or forgotten after death? Forgotten. That's kind of a morbid question. Camping or glamping? Camping. Netflix or Hulu? Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. (laughs) Toys or candy? Toys. Ketchup or ranch? I don't think I've ever intentionally had ranch, but I've had ketchup. Wash dishes immediately or wait until the sink is full? Immediately. Dine in or order delivery? Dine in. Test the waters or dive in the deep end? Just dive in. And one more. Raise or bonus? We'll see. Bonus. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was tough when you're self-employed. <laughs> I know. Neither of them happened. <laughs> That's right. So I have to apologize and I've got to tell people on the podcast that I completely screwed up. So Todd and I were having a fabulous conversation, actually very interesting, and the podcast host forgot to press record on the podcaster. So Todd's been really gracious about it, but we have to start over. We did start with you were born and raised in the Lower Mainland, Mm -hmm. yeah, and uh, raised by a single mother, Mm -hmm. and it was a little bit of a tough, tough It was. It, I think is the common experience for, for single moms. Right. And who don't have all those economic resources. And um, yeah, I don't think my, my father never paid any child support. So uh, yeah, it was pretty rough for her. Yeah. And you were telling me about uh, your grandfather. Yeah. He was um, French Canadian, born in Dawson City, just at the end of the gold rush. So 
I, you know, his family were kind of from humble backgrounds. Right. And yeah, so he was a big part of my early life. I have some really early memories as a child. Like I, I definitely have memories of, of uh, like vivid memories of being less than a year old and spending time with, with him or, or other people. So I have a lot of fond memories of, of being with him. He was uh, great in the kitchen. He was a fantastic cook. He made wine from every single type of fruit in his yard. I used to spend time with him in the kitchen as he'd be decanting his wine and smoking a cigarette and <laughs> hanging out with him while he was watching the uh, the Montreal Canadiens play. And our favorite activity was to was to go to the, the Fraser River where they had dredged up a bunch of sand and there were like sand dunes and I would roll around in the sand dunes. And to me as a kid, my memory of them were being huge, but I don't think they were all that big. While he would sort of comb the beach and look for weird shaped driftwood, which he'd take back home and turn into various different magical creatures by putting eyes and feathers on them. And he's actually quite a skilled carpenter and cabinet maker. I don't know if he, I don't think he had any formal training, but I've got a, one of his pieces at home. But he passed away when I was five years old. I definitely lost something. My life changed significantly after that. Right. And all the support that he provided to my mother also just vanished. So, you know, things became a lot more difficult for her as well. Which then translates to difficult for you. Absolutely. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was New West that you grew up in. Correct. Uh, well, we, you know, we floated around the lower mainland. So yeah, you know, just, I think she was just trying to find a good place to live. And so North Vancouver, uh, Boundary Bay, but eventually ended up in the west side of Vancouver. She remarried. And I, and so I grew up from about the age of uh, nine in West Point Gray near UBC. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which is a pretty nice, pretty nice, nice neighborhood. Place, yep. Yeah. Yep. But it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's now of course, uh, very bougie, but back then it was working class. Okay. You know, so homes were affordable. It was mostly, you know, college professors and students and working class people. And now of course it's, you know, it's, um, they're all part of people's investment portfolios. So yeah, single best investment my stepfather ever made was to buy a house Absolutely. in Vancouver in yeah. the early seventies. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would be a good investment. <laughs> it was, it was. Yeah. As I said, it was like, uh, what, 60 grand in 1972. And he was a pilot earning, you know, like a junior pilot oh. at a small airline earning 20 grand a year. So he was earning like one third of his house's value in one year. I mean, that's just not possible now in Vancouver. Now yeah. it's a $4 million house. And so I don't know too many people that, you know, make more than a million dollars a year. Right. Out of high school. Out of high school. So in high school, I could do well in school if I put my mind to it. I usually would just do enough to pass a course, which meant that I spent a lot of my time actually not in the classroom. I figured out by about grade 10 or something that uh, that being on stage crew was a thing. I could get notes written up that excused me from different classes. So that's I spent a lot of time in the auditorium. And we just created a whole scene in there for ourselves. We had like speakers and music set up. We had like a lounge set up with all the stage equipment. And there's a big wrestling mat in there. We would like wrestle and listen to music. And then we could hear the principal, the click, click, click of her high heels coming to check on us. And we, we were so skilled at that, that as soon as we heard her key in the door, lights were off, music was off. We just vanish, disappear. And she would enter into an auditorium that was completely black and probably was like, did I just hear something in there? You know, and then she would leave and everything would come back on. So that's, yeah, a lot of how I spent my, my high school career. I was a skilled actor. We won a, a theater festival that was like a like a lower mainland wide theater festival, and uh, it was uh, the final performance was at the um, it was the Vancouver East Cultural Center, and 
you know, I remember being down in the green room after the performance and I could hear all the people stamping and hollering and clapping. And then um, this agent I had then, uh, invited to the to the performance came downstairs and it was sort of the classic thing where he comes in and he points his finger and he says, call me in the morning. So at that point I had a, I had an agent. So I went right out of high school um, and became an actor and mostly in Vancouver film and television, right? Okay. Uh, not so much theater, but I got really bored of it. As, as I said, I, I was on, you know, I did guest stars on shows like 21 Jump Street and Wise Guy and Danger Bay. I did a few movie of the weeks. I did a, did some feature films. So did uh, you get to meet Johnny Depp? Yeah, yeah. Cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and Peter DeLuise. Wow. Mm-hmm. Spent more time with Peter DeLuise. I loved uh, Jump Street. Did you? Yeah, I did. I really loved that show. Now I'm going to have to go back and see if I can find episodes. To uh, see you, where you're well, at. yeah. So one of the episodes I was in, I was just, I had more of a, a smaller role. I was like part of this crew that was beating up this guy with AIDS. Yeah, oh. were, like really pieces of crap. And then um, there was another one after Johnny Depp had left, whatever the guy look-alike replacement guy that they uh, hired yeah that was my that was my big guest starring role on, on the show where i was like uh, inducted into a satanic cult and was gonna shoot my mother oh wow so <laughs> yeah so i had a i had a pretty good um size part on that but i didn't have any management and uh i just didn't make the jump like my agent really wanted me to move to new york he had a meeting set up for me with woody allen's casting director and he he had it all lined up for me to start auditioning and doing soaps. I was just like, I'm going to do soap operas. Are you kidding? I'm already doing this crap. You know, I refused to do commercials. I did a few and then I was like, I'm not doing commercials anymore. You know, I, I thought of myself as an artist, so I wasn't going to do this, this stuff. So, you know, it didn't take very long for me to get pretty bored of it. And so I sold all my stuff. It was a one-way ticket. It was a round-the-trip ticket, but it had like a like a long, like a one-year time period. Oh, okay. So I, I went to India and I and traveled around through India and uh, West Asia for a year on about $2,000. I had a lot of experiences. I, I spent some time learning the South Indian drum called the Murdungam. I've never I heard of that before. By. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's, you probably heard of Tabla. Yeah. So that's in the North Indian Hindustani school. So in, in the Southern classical school of Indian music in the South is called Carnatic music. And their main drum is a double-headed drum. It has a very distinct sound, but the artists who play Murdangam just have an amazing grasp of rhythm. Just like any jazz drummer would just be in awe of like the kind of rhythms, really? the syncopations, the polyrhythms that they can kind of come up with. And so I, I thought for a while there that I would, I wouldn't do that, but I realized very quickly that I was studying with people that had been playing since they were three years old. And I just loved to listen to them, but I was like, okay, I don't think that it's very productive for me to do this. So I just continued on my way and, but I got really sick in South India while I was traveling with these classical musicians and um, I just, it was a great privilege to just be on a, on a circuit with them. Right. To these like sacred festivals that, um, you know, that uh, really only insiders got to go to. But they were like warming up for a performance later that night. And I was in someone's home and this kindly old lady came to me and she brought me some uh, chopped up apple on a plate. And, you know, being a northerner or westerner, she was like, yeah, this is some, you know, fruit for you. Because this is from where you, you know, what you guys eat. Oh, right? okay, and yeah. so I was like, I just polite and I just took a couple bites. And within an hour later, I was just like, I just had the worst diarrhea. And it just turned into full-blown dysentery. Oh my I almost died. I mean, I, I you know, was only 19 at the time. I remember going back to my hotel and I'd be like, I would just be lying in the bed, just feverish out of it. But I would sort of get myself smartened up and I would stagger to the desk, front desk. And I'd buy like a, you know, a big 
you know, liter and a half bottle of water and I'd take it back to my room and I would just drink it. Uh. I'd collapse on the bed for 20 minutes and then get up and then just poop out water, like Uh just clear water and then just collapse back into bed. And, you know, I did have some antibiotics in my med kit and I did, it did occur to me after a couple days of that to take it. It probably saved my life because the dehydration clearly was super severe and I, and I didn't know anything about electrolytes or anything like that. So but the thing is, antibiotics aren't going to really cure a problem like that. And I just continued traveling. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, I... Were I, you by yourself? I was by trip? myself, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I, I got myself well enough that I could just keep traveling. But, you know, I wasn't thriving. I lost a lot of weight. But I had a lot of interesting experiences. Eventually, I crossed the border into Pakistan, went up to a place called Hanza, uh, northern Pakistan. I, I traveled through northern Pakistan, which is, you know, this is 19... 8990 this is just after the soviets had left afghanistan and so the the northern pakistan was just full of the mujahideen which later became the the taliban okay and so they're just like really ultra extremist up there yeah and i went traveling up there during ramadan which it's ramadan in in other countries but in pakistan they say ramadan which is the dawn to dusk fast so it was really difficult to travel and just, you know, people getting angry at each other at, at the local market and shooting each other and just like bad yeah. scene all the way around, you know, and, you know, w- women, you know, d- dressed in the full on, you know, burqa stumbling over their children because they can't see them. And, uh-huh. um, but eventually made my way up to Hunza and it's at the very tip, northern tip of Pakistan, where there are a different type of Muslim there, Ismaili Muslim, and they don't practice this dawn to dusk fast. They don't, um, they don't necessarily pray five times a day. Hmm. Uh, women don't have to have their head covered any more than men do. They, hmm. all, they all wear like modest clothing and wear little hats and stuff, but they don't wear any veil or anything to cover their face. And, you know, it's to get up there, you have to travel along, basically along the Silk Road. And this highway, the, the called the Karakom Highway that was built there, was built by the Chinese. And a lot of this highway they built just by rappelling down the sides of a cliff, dynamiting it, and then rappelling back down and just like, hammering it out. And these roads are basically no wider than your room. And wow. so, and then you're on these buses and they're just whizzing around corners. And as you're whizzing around, if you're in a window seat and you're like looking out the window and like you don't see any more road, it's like there's no road. And, and the ravine that you see, you know, if you've traveled, you know, along highway number three and BC and along the Fraser Canyon, it's pretty magnificent. This is like five times that height. Uh-huh. Right, like these are the biggest mountains in the world. It's quite desolate as you as you're going up, and then finally you round this corner as you get to the Hunza Valley. And I was there in February. The entire valley, it's like all these steeply terraced slopes, and they all they grow apricots. So when I got there, all the apricots were in bloom. So you come to this uh-huh. valley, and it was just swathed in pink, and the glaciers, just these massive glaciers sitting above. It was Shangri La. It, it was beautiful. amazing. I just. I just sat myself there for a few weeks and I just ate their food and drank their water. And it was the only time in my life where just eating and drinking water, I felt like energy was just flowing into my body every day because I'd gotten up there in a kind of a debilitated state. But I significantly recovered my health just living up there and and eating that food and drinking that glacial water. I talked about that in my book and some of my experiences and, and why I received so much benefit from that. Some good reasons why. You know, and then just continued my journey down south uh, Pakistan and through Afghanistan and eventually made my way into Iran just at the end of um, of Ramadan. Traveled around Iran. Iran was a great country. 
I ended up going to the Rose Garden of Saadi, a, a Persian poet, with the intention of finding a Sufi. And I just sat there for like a half an hour. And then this fellow walks up and he starts talking to me. Because, you know, I was dressed in, in Pakistani clothing. Okay. So yeah. I was wearing the Shalwaran kameez. And believe it or not, there are a lot of people in northern Pakistan that look like me, that are you know, fair skin and blue eyes and, and light colored hair. In Iran, I'm dressed like this. People would walk up to me and say, Kujats, Kujats, where are you from? And I, 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 they'd say, Afghan, Afghan. And I would say, uh, no, no, Canada. And they'd go, oh, Canada dry. You know, and then they'd invite me over for tea. So anyway, I, they were fascinated because they could tell I wasn't local. Right. But they weren't quite sure who I was or where I was from. So anyway, I ended up um, meeting this fellow who knew Sufis. And I told him my interest to, to meet some Sufis. And uh, he introduced me to a community of Sufis. I actually ended up being inducted later into their brotherhood. I actually know the, the secret handshake. To, there's if a secret I ever, handshake? There's a secret handshake, which I can't show you. But um, <laughs> if, yeah, if I ever go to uh, Shiraz, I know where to go. The Garden of Saadi. And I you know, have the names of... Uh, and memories, of course, of, of these different Sufis, and I uh, participated in some of their really sacred rituals and spent time with a Sufi master there. And it was a, an amazing experience. And, you know, the Persian people are just so warm and lovely. But it was like when I, I made my way up to the, the northern part of Iran, where they're a little more fundamentalist up there. And I had um, I'd gotten off the bus there. And this is actually on the way up there. They have these, what are called the Islamic Revolutionary Guard, or they call them Komite. They're basically like fundamentalist Islamic G.I. Joe guys. They're just like, they're just, they're militaristic and they, they all look the same. They all have this kind of like short hair and a short trim beard. And their main job is to kind of police everyone's ethics and morality. So they would come on the bus and like they would inspect the bus and make sure that, for example, you know, I had my sleeves rolled up and they made me roll down my sleeves and button up my shirt. For sure, all the women, they made sure that their chador they were wearing was, you know, covering their hair completely. If not, then they would, you know, they would even cut their, cut their hair that was sticking out. Wow. So we, we'd gotten stopped on the way up to this little northern town called Astada. And they delayed everyone. They took me off of the bus and they took me to their headquarters and they went through all of my stuff. They listened to all the cassettes that I had. I had brought some Indian, classical Indian music. I had some books on like religion, like Buddhism. They went through all my clothing, inspected everything. They didn't find the money that I actually had sewn into my clothing because um, the official exchange rate in Iran was terrible. It was like 40 reals per dollar, whereas in the black market it was like 2,000. So I had a bunch of bills like sewn into my clothing just to smart to make it worth you know worth my while to go there. And I got their I got their approval, and they put me back on the bus, and I kind of just sheepishly you know you know apologized to everyone. But they're very used to these kinds of inconveniences, and you know, we make our way to this little town of Astara, and I get off the bus, and for whatever reason, people knew that I was not Afghani or or local, and so I just was swarmed with people. As soon as I got off the bus, they were all inviting me over for tea. They were so curious, like why was I there? Because they hadn't seen a foreigner for like more than a decade. It took me a while Holy. to find a, a guest house. I finally found one and the, the proprietor was so worried about having me stay there. He was like, I, I, I need some evidence. Like, you are who you are. I, can I? Can you please give me your passport? I'm going to put it here in the safe. And there's no reason not to trust him. And there was, there was like kids running around. He was like a grandpa-like guy. You know, as far as I was just a complete trustworthy. So I gave my passport and and then I I went out for a walk. And I at the time I was teaching myself to play the Indian bansuri, which is like a bamboo flute. Okay. I had taken up smoking at the time, mainly because it was this novelty that everyone in Iran smoked Winston cigarettes. And I just thought it was so funny and ironic that people were smoking these like American cigarettes 
that I thought I got to do this too, you know. <laughs> so I went up to the to the Caspian Sea, you know, to to sit down, play my bunsidi, and smoke a few of these Winstons. And they're on the way up there. This looked like a homeless dude. He was like in military fatigues, but you know, he was grizzled and un, un, unshaven. And he and I was walking along, and he grabbed my jacket, and he he wanted something. And I was like, I don't know what you want. And he just kept grabbing me, and I was like, just leave me alone, you know. I already been through like through a, like a a one hour inspection. Right. I already, you know, I'd been thoroughly reviewed. So I just sort of brushed him off, and I continued walking, and then. About 30 seconds later, a, a pickup truck just comes whizzing out of nowhere and comes right up on the curb in front of me. And then four guys jump out, two of them with machine guns, and they grab me and throw me in the back of the pickup truck. But I struggle. I actually took them a long time to get me in the pickup truck because I did this thing where I would like struggle and they, and then I would go completely limp and they would drop me. And then and they'd pick me up and then I would struggle and then I would go completely limp and then they drop me. And, you know, I'd already been traveling now for like a good seven or eight months so I don't had lots of experiences, and so they're putting me in the back of this pickup truck, and they got their machine guns trained on me, and I'm, I'm oh. and like I'm pissed off at this point. I'm like full on adrenaline. They've broken my flute in the process, oh, no. and I'm screaming at them, "You broke my fucking flute!" And I'm banging the barrel of their machine gun with my broken flute, and I'm screaming at them, "You <laughs> motherfucker!" And they take me to the to another headquarters, another coming to headquarters, and they like march me in upstairs, and I'm just pissed. <laughs> you know, I'm 19 years old, right? Yeah. Full of testosterone. And <laughs> and so they're making me wait for the, I don't know, the inspector general. I don't know what you would call the dude, but the main guy. Yeah. You know? And boss. I'm sitting there, the boss. And like, then I pull out a cigarette. I start to smoke it. And they're like, no, no cigarette. They grab the cigarette. And then I just like look at them and I just take out another cigarette. And I, <laughs> and I start to light it. And then they grab that one. And then and I take out another one and I start to light it. And this is going on. And then finally the, the dude shows up. And he's very different from the rest of these guys. Like, he's a totally different class of person. Like, he was in a suit. He had a thin little pencil mustache. He could speak pretty good English. He was he was he seemed to be pretty mellow and kindly. And I, I explained that I had already gone through this, this process. I already been thoroughly vetted, had everything examined and listened to. And he was like, well, just let me make a phone call. And he made a phone call. Then he hung up the phone. He was like, okay, you're right. You're right. You seem to be okay, so you're free to go. And so then I just was, I just left the compound. As I'm leaving the compound, I'm like giving all the guys in the finger and I'm telling them to fuck off. And they're all like glaring at me and like going, ah, ah, and like making, you know, insulting me. And I'm just like, and then I go back to my hotel and then, then all my adrenaline just left. And then I was just like, holy shit, I got to get the hell out of this country. <laughs> But up to that point, my, my experiences in Iran have been pretty good. Like, right. Really good. I met lots of cool people. But that was That'd definitely that was definitely negative experience. And so, you know, it was near the Turkish border. So I finally, I left Iran. And, you know, you get to Turkey. And then it's like for the first time in a long time, I'd seen like women, you know, like because in Pakistan, um, you didn't see any women there. As I said, they're all like in a burqa. Right. They're just, I said, just like this, like basically like a sack with this little, you know, sewn net for them to see out of, stumbling over their children. In Iran, you know, they all, at the time, they all had to wear like big overcoats and a chador, which is like a head scarf. Um, so you could see their faces and stuff. But I remember sitting on the public transit in Tehran and just seeing women on the bus and they were, they would stand separately. You'd see like a woman like holding onto the bar and then the, her, like her coat would drop and you'd see like a little bit of her wrist. And I would like just look at her wrist and be like, 
And then I would look around and see all the guys also are also looking at her wrist like, whoa, do you see that wrist? Whoa. You know, it was just like we were all so deprived of the, of the female form. Maybe right. It was just my imagination and maybe it was just more of the case for me because obviously I was just on my own and traveling. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was interesting to travel to, to Turkey and then just to see that completely flip and just to see women, you know, living relatively normal lives. Right. And uh, traveled to Turkey, had some interesting experiences. I had another experience where I tried to cross the, I, I went to Cyprus and I tried to cross the border from Northern Cyprus into Southern Cyprus. But, um, you know, the Turks and the Greeks are basically kind of been in a state of war over Cyprus for some time. Right. And I tried to cross the border and the the, the Greek border guard, he like, he seemed to be very polite and nice. And he took my information down. He took down my passport number. And then he was like, no, you can't come in. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so I staged a little protest at the border. You know, I had a little sign. I was saying like, there are hypocrites and just like, and the, who, who was I protesting to? Nobody. It was just like people in the UN that were driving. They'd be like driving by and they'd look at me like, what the fuck is that? So, and then eventually the border guard, he came up and he got mad at me for protesting and he like smacked me and he threw my bag and I was like, and so then what I did, I was kind of in the, in the no man zone. And so there was a wall there and I just threw my bags over this wall and I jumped over this wall into the Canadian military compound. And all these Canadian guidance and they're all just like, just losing their shit. Like, who's this guy? You know, cause I was still dressed in Afghani clothing right? and like, and then explain, look, I'm Canadian. Like, I'm just trying to get to, you know, I want to get to Egypt. That's what I'm trying to do. And like, they just abused me at the border. And then they're like, they're like, oh, what are we going to do? There's like an international incident. So they decided the best course of action would be to smuggle me back across the border, back into Turkey, into the northern Cyprus, which is what they eventually did. They smuggled me back across the border. <laughs> and then I, yeah, and then I just took a plane back to Istanbul. As I said, I, I saw my first McDonald's in Istanbul and I just was like, ugh, I can't deal with this. So I jumped on a plane and flew back to Sri Lanka where I ended up spending several months just studying Buddhism, living in a Buddhist vihara before I eventually ran out of money and then had to return home. Wow. But I got really sick, as I said, and, and I had this chronic GI issue. So when I returned to Canada, I sought out treatment from a number of different practitioners, but it wasn't until I met an Ayurveda physician. Ayurveda is the classical system of healing from India. It's a little ironic that I, you know, had been in India, had lots of opportunity to meet Ayurveda physicians and it didn't occur to me. I didn't know anything about it, but uh, he really helped me out. He was the first one to tell me what to eat, when to eat. He gave me some really simple herbal remedies. And yeah, it just took like about a month, month and a half for me to restore my health and I was so taken by those results that I began to study with him and there was a new college opening up at the time that was offering an accredited program in, in herbal medicine. So I, I decided to get out alone and, and study that program and graduated in in ninety in ninety six and then did um, a half a year postgraduate study in the south of India at the Ayurveda Chikitsalam in Coimbatore. And then and then after that returned back to Canada to practice. That's a crazy journey. Oh, it's just just a few of the stories. I I have I actually, when I look back on it and I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? Like when I think of all the things that I did and got myself into, I'm really surprised I'm here talking to you. <laughs> it is a little, you know, like, yeah. it, you know, sometimes I, when I think about them, I just like a little, you know, bit of beads of sweat appear in my forehead. I'm like, what the hell was I doing? Like I almost died. Yeah. You know, that's... but you know, you're young and, you know, and I'm sure the testosterone had something to do with it, you know, just like whatever. So it's man i've had lots of very interesting experiences in life that's just a sample of of some of the experiences i've had but the funny thing is 
you deal with the guys with the machine guns, mm -hmm. but it's the apples that almost took you out. It's true. That's yeah. irony right there, right? Yeah, and that had happened well before that, but yeah, just something so innocuous. I mean, you think about like there's no apples in South India. Like they don't grow there. So they come from the northern part of India. So you come from like the Kashmir area. So, you know, by the time it gets down to South India, just imagine how many people handle that apple. Uh, right? Gross. And yeah. so, you know, you, the, the rule of thumb is you definitely never eat any raw anything in India. It's mm. always got to be cooked. Right. I mean, if it's fruit, then for sure it has to be peeled. But even then, it's easy for cross-contamination to occur. So, you know, it didn't take very much. It was just a couple slices. And, you know, it was the most awful case of, of dysentery. As I said, it, it, it almost did me in. And, you know, I in my practice now, I you know, I deal with a lot of people with chronic GI issues. And it's a good percentage of the people, like most people that I treat that have like inflammatory bowel disease, they can usually draw the origin of that issue to some type of infection, like GI infection, like a tropical infection that wasn't properly treated. Really? You know, they just give them antibiotics and antibiotics, you know, kill the offending pathogen, but destroy the microbiome. And because you never completely obliterate all the microorganisms in your gut, it's like you just give the surviving pathogens a chance to just repopulate themselves okay so you know some of that can be avoided by making sure you're taking probiotics and stuff but even then you know addressing digestive issues is a lot more than just killing things just like in society like if you want to if you have a bad neighborhood say downtown east side you know you just can't like send in the SWAT team and round everybody up and arrest them you know right. it doesn't do anything to improve the biome the ecology right you know, you have to deal with all those issues of poverty and, and economic injustice. And so the same analogies apply to something like digestion, too. It begins with the food you eat and how you eat it and combinations you eat it in and the time you eat it. Right. You know, and all of that is unique and different to each individual, which is why a lot of diets don't work because they're not specific enough. They're not, they're not individualized enough. Because I don't know a lot about your line of practice. Mm -hmm. I don't. I haven't dealt with that uh, much myself. So it, it's definitely interesting to me to hear. Yeah, it's it's uh, you know it, it is the original form of healthcare, right? Like still for much of the world's population, they rely on traditional medicines as their primary form of healthcare. Right. You know, at least fifty percent of pharmaceuticals are derived from natural products, and and those that aren't are usually inspired from type some type of natural product that they you know learn to synthesize. Right. Which makes sense. You know, and then there's a lot of skepticism. You'll often hear proponents of, of of modern medicine say, "Oh, you can't trust herbs and natural products because they haven't been properly studied." But you know, these plants have been used for thousands of years. There's an enormous amount of empirical evidence behind them. It's really analogous. And, or comparative to like our diet, like, you know, we've learned how to feed ourselves over millions of years and we've done a pretty good job of it. You know, like we know how to feed ourselves. We know we, we figured out how to optimize our nutrition without knowing any science. Right. Right. Like the, the indigenous peoples, one of their favorite, uh, favorite consumed foods is ulugan grease, which is the rendered oil from little oily fish, like mm. little smelts. And they were so taken with this food they, that they would go to the effort to, to harvest them, to allow them to putrefy, and then to render off the oil, and then consume that oil whenever they could. They would even trade that oil for other commodities, like there are these so-called grease trails that extend from coastal regions all the way from Alaska and to Northern California inland across the mountain ranges into the, into the prairies. There were trade routes called grease trails that were defined by the indigenous peoples trading 
commodities like beaver pelts and, and hide and another commodities for this grease for this fish grease so important and why why would they do that and discover later on that wait a second it's a rich source of fat soluble vitamins including vitamin d3 hmm. right which is necessary to maintain proper immune function especially in the winter when you're not able to synthesize it from the sun right so like indigenous peoples traditional peoples figured out all kinds of stuff about diet and how to optimize their diet and what foods were were optimal to consume and they accumulated all that knowledge and experience without any science and so it's really the same thing with our medicines they also observed all these relationships between plants and diseases and how to use them and develop protocols for their use and some cultures in very sophisticated ways if you were just using science to figure out what to eat just using science and not any tradition any practice you know you'd be hard-pressed to come up with something that would be edible and that would actually meet all your nutritional needs. Right. It would just be a, f a function of just trial and error. And you know, it would take just thousands of years to accumulate that empirical evidence. So there's an enormous amount of, of knowledge that's embodied in our subjective, visceral relationship that we have with nature. Mm -hmm. Like There's a lot of, lot of dense information that's contained within those relationships that we can access right. when, when properly guided. And, you know, science is a wonderful tool, but science is a model of reality. It's not reality itself, right? Like, it's a comparative analysis by creating an experiment that's meant to represent reality, but it's not reality, you know? And, and you try to extrapolate findings from that research to, to inform how we relate to actual reality. We shouldn't confuse them and think that they're the same, which is why science is continuously changing. It's continuously changing, whereas, like, the, the time-honored empirical evidence from these tr traditional practices they don't change over thousands of years. They don't change, not significantly. And I find that fascinating. And moreover, it's not just a, a curiosity. It works. These medicines work in, in ways that we simply don't have the ability or capacity to fully understand from a scientific perspective. But just because we don't doesn't mean they're not valid. Just like the thing with the diet. It's like, look at all these different amazing food traditions. You can't tell us that these people don't know how to cook and nourish themselves because they lack science. They like clearly they do, right? And yeah. so, you know, I, I think it's changing a lot now. Like, you know, when I first started practicing, there was a lot of antipathy towards, well, what it is that I do? You know, in 1995, the federal government wanted to ban some 95 different medicinal plants, including garlic and ginger. Because if you like concentrate those substances and give it to a, an experimental animal equal to like a thousand times it, it, the actual level they would they would ever consume, it might have some kind of toxic effect. Or they might uh. isolate or extract one constituent and amplify it and give it and then see some time of some type of toxic effect and then attribute that to the food itself. Paracelsus taught was that the, the poison is in the dose, right? So you could definitely probably hurt yourself by consuming too much garlic. Right, just but, like you could with too much water. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's a perfect example. Yeah. Is, you know, water. I mean, we all need water, and yet um, it'll kill you. Yeah. It's like the sun as well. It's it's like all this fear and concern that people have around the sun. There are some dermatologists that will say that there's no safe level of sun exposure, and yet what's become very evident in the last couple decades of research is, is that there's an epidemic of vitamin D3 deficiency in Canada, and it has huge repercussions for our health, with metabolic health, with immune health. And, and so it's just logically inconsistent to say that the sun, which is so essential for the synthesis of vitamin D, is also so dangerous. It's like water. I and mean, you can definitely hurt yourself with the sun, but like water, you also need it. Right. 
everything in moderation. In right? moderation, the proper yeah. amount. And, and what traditional peoples were able to do is kind of observe and create those relationships and guidelines of those around those relationships. This is why when you go to a, a traditional country where they have a lot of sun exposure, they don't go outside during the day. They have this sort of siesta tradition where they hang out in the heat of the day inside undercover. The only people you typically will see outside are either people who are very poor or tourists right. walking around, taking photos of things, getting progressively more and more burnt. <laughs> That'd be me. <laughs> very quickly <laughs> well, you know, you and easily. the holidays, so I've got to get your money out of it. <laughs> so we went when you finished your, uh, your schooling and your practicum mm-hmm. and you came back to Canada. Then you'd mm-hmm. mentioned you'd moved to the Kootenays. Yeah, it's, it's where I kind of got my grounding in some of the other facets of herbal medicine that relate to uh, like wild plant harvesting and foraging and wild crafting, stuff that's certainly become very popular now. I, I was doing that like 30 years ago. And so I would um, wild craft medicinal plants and make different remedies and sell them at the local co-op. I was living in a community called Herrett Proctor. And at the time, the government had opened up our watershed to be logged. And so instead of engaging in the typical battle between environmentalists and loggers, the community decided they would do an end round around that process and log it themselves. So they applied for tenure themselves and and they created a a community business, basically, to uh, and they created an ecosystem-based plan where they can harvest timber sustainably. And I suggested that uh, they hire me to conduct research on non-timber forest products which is basically just all those plants that are out there in the bush that don't have any economic value in terms of lumber, but have value in terms of medicinal properties. Right. And so the idea was is that we could do a value add here so that maybe we could offset some of the decrease in income we would get from, from having an ecosystem-based plan for logging that we could supplement that by creating an industry around some medicinal plants. So we have had about 12,500 hectares of territory in the Herr Proctor watershed just to the east of, of Nelson. And we did a botanical survey. We, we looked for different medicinal species that uh, have uh, potential economic value and medicinal value. And then, you know, after doing that analysis, we discovered that there are a few spe- key species uh, that seemed particularly abundant or interesting. So then we began to conduct sustainable harvesting trials to see how much we could harvest in a particular area and then measure that regeneration. So it was a pretty fascinating research project. Yeah. But unfortunately, we lost our funding. There was a change in government. The, it was like the, it was the ND, end of the NDP. Liberals got elected. They cut our funding. And so that was it for that project. They just, we couldn't progress with it, unfortunately. Mm. So I, yeah, after the Kootenays, I, I moved to Calgary. I eventually became the clinical director of herbal studies at Wildrose College. So I developed their clinical program. I taught. I was like the dean of the college and uh, also practiced there as well. And then you know, raised, a, raised a bunch of kids there too, had three kids. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Three kids. Mm-hmm. Wow. In Calgary. In Calgary. Yeah, for a while. I was, it was six years in Calgary, enough to traumatize me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so where'd you go after Calgary? I got headhunted by a company, a supplement company, to Florida. And, you know, I mean, it was a pretty enticing offer. I mean, it was like the middle of winter in Calgary. I was done with that. And so I remember, I remember that like um, flying there and, and, you know, the day we arrived, we like took the kids to the beach. So, you know, earlier in the day, we're like just shivering cold and minus 40. And then we're at the beach in shorts, you know, the kids like just running around in the surf. And so it was pretty fun from that perspective. And the company 
didn't have a place for me to work. Uh, and so they just had me work from home. And so it was great. I was able to like work for a few hours a day, like meet all my, my targets in terms of what they needed me to do. And then I could just go to the beach. And that was a pretty good lifestyle. But then eventually they brought me into the office and I had to warm a seat in an office. And that's, was the beginning of the end Uh, for me. Yeah. um, Because I realized that there was no way I could be productive all day because all they would do was just give me more work. Mm. And they weren't inclined to like give me more money. I had this sense of, oh, I need to learn how to waste time. Mm. And, you know, that just didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. But that's a survival technique that I, I realized that a lot of people in the corporate world have to do, which is, is that you just, you have to just be moderate in how much work that you do. You got to do, got to do enough, but you can't do too much. And you end up having to sort of waste a lot of time. Right. It seemed incredibly inefficient. And then also I just, I grew to understand the way they ran their company and the kind of products that they developed that they just didn't have really any expertise and that they were really just a marketing company, which kind of confirmed everything that I, I knew and had been teaching about herbal medicine. They just kind of confirmed that right. for me. There were some big issues with some of the quality in their product and stuff. And uh, I, you know, I wasn't shy about sharing my, my opinion on those things with the, with the president of the company. And I think that, that uh, didn't go over so well. <laughs> So, yeah, we, you know, basically we arrived at a decision where it was probably not the best thing for me to continue working there. So I moved back to Canada. Fair enough. Yeah. Where did you land back in Canada? In Vancouver. Back in Vancouver. Back in Vancouver. And unfortunately, it was the early 2000s and like, or mid, mid 2000s, like 2005, so Vancouver had become or was becoming just progressively more un- unaffordable. Right. So it was it was difficult to yeah. kind of come back and restart one's life with three kids in tow, and especially in the field of work that I do, which is as I mentioned, like you know I went to school for all that time, did all that training, but very little training in actual business. Just really, really basic stuff, but not enough to really understand about how to be an entrepreneur. And that's probably because most of the people teaching didn't know how to be an entrepreneur either. I mean, that's a very particular skill set. Right. Right. Like, I'm not even sure if I had an MBA, if it would have benefited me, but it would have been something. Yeah. But I realized that what was required of me to be successful was something very different than what I was trained in doing. Mm. So it wasn't necessarily easy to do that. I just did a bunch of things to see what would work. So that's so I've so I've I've written books and I've I've done a lot of teaching. I've um, had a clinical practice. I did done some product development. I've done uh, field work and botanical research. Uh, any one of those things would have been good just to focus on, but I've done all of them, <laughs> and so <laughs> I've developed lots of different experiences. I'm very well rounded uh, in all those different fields. I'm a bit of a renaissance man i guess or you know jack of all trades master of none but as the saying goes i can't remember it's maybe it's better to to be a jack of all trades at least in the end you know i'm i've got a good life now i've i've got a a lot of expertise in a lot of different areas and so it's a it's a little different now at age 53 than it was when i was in my 30s trying to you know keep body and soul together what's the most important thing to track in your business No, not your employees. Let them go to the break room in peace. The correct answer is money. You probably guessed that would be where this ad is going. This is why bookkeepers exist, of course, and why it's smart to hire the most accurate, fastidious, knowledgeable, and honest bookkeeper you can. And that's why so many businesses have turned to Aaron Reed and Banking On It Bookkeeping. 
Erin knows numbers, and as a one-woman bookkeeping machine, you can rest easy knowing your business's bookkeeping isn't divided between a dozen people who don't have the whole picture. Don't want to stay at the office crunching numbers all weekend? Get that work-life balance you want with Banking On It Bookkeeping. As Erin says, life is like bookkeeping. Everything must be balanced. Find Erin online at bankingonit.ca. Once again, that's Erin Reed online at bankingonit.ca. This is Coastal Currents with Erin Reed. So I know what brought you to Powell River because I'd already asked this mm-hmm. and wasn't recording. So I know it was the change in life and, and mm-hmm. getting out of the city and that sort of thing. But what put Powell River on your radar? Uh, well, some people specifically from Vancouver that were friends that moved up here were encouraging me to move up here. Paul and Karen Kamen. Do okay. you know them, Paul? He used to be head of tourism here. Yeah. Now he's in a more advisory consultant role now, but... Yeah, they made the move um, before we did and, um, you know, got in when the market was, you know, really advantageous and um, we were just able to make it work. And But I just, I'd been up here a few times and, you know, I just, I just love the geography. I love the, you know, the rocky bluffs and the arbutus trees and all of the access to water, to the ocean, to the lakes. And, and it was, you know, in 2018, it was a little more affordable. Right. You know, it was probably one of the more affordable areas in southern BC, coastal southern BC, right? Like it's, it was even cheaper and still is, I think, a little cheaper than the island. Didn't have some of the the some of the issues that you're looking at in the island, like like a lack of water. Right. Powell River has just amazing hydrological resources. And but the real big surprise for me was to discover just what a great community it is here. And I, I feel like it's it's because of the two ferries and it gives people kind of a sort of isolated feeling like we're on an island and i i feel like people here are just have a much stronger com- sense of community than in a place like vancouver where i tried to make it work for a number of years and it was really difficult to generate energy and attention people are very flaky in vancouver you know they don't show up to things that they say they're going to show up to and um but here people do yeah like a good community involvement and so that was a big and very welcome surprise it's just a wonderful community but I have to say, here you have trouble getting people to agree in advance that they're coming. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean it. <laughs> it's a 100% Cothet thing that anytime people are trying to sell tickets to an event, it seems like it's getting closer and closer and closer. And then it's the day of and everybody's going, can I get tickets at the door? Where can I get tickets? Does anybody have tickets? It's a, it's. It's kind of a phenomenon, I think. Here. Okay, well, it's good to know because yeah. I, I'm running a, a three-day herbal pharmacy program in August, and you got like three or four people signed up, and there's room for more for sure. Yeah. So hopefully we get more people signing up soon because it's a pretty fun program. Three days of just like you know exploring herbal medicine from a practical perspective and making a bunch of medicines. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. So is it? Is that like going out in the bush and actually... That's part of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, just three days, right? So it's hard to still, you know, 25 years of, of my experience into just three days. So right. it's pretty focused on, on medicine making. And then we do... I do take the students out for like a half a day and we, we do some while crafting, some harvesting. We come back, we make some medicine out of that. That's just cool. Just f- figure out what, what, um, 
usually what we've been harvesting the last couple of years is um, Epilobia angustifolium, which is the fireweed. Oh. Fireweed root. Okay. Yeah, we use it for prostate disorders. Oh. Mm-hmm. It's pretty effective, pretty effective for that. What do you use dandelions for? Dandelion, I mean, it's a food, yeah. right? Like the leaves are our food. So, and you can make like wine from the from the flowers. Just remove the greenish bracts. It makes a really nice wine. Really? The leaves are, the French name is uh, pissenlit, which means piss in bed. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> it, it suggests that it's a diuretic. Yeah. And that it is. It's actually a potassium sparing diuretic. So... Uh, it doesn't usually create the the problems that you find with some conventional uh, pharmaceuticals that are diuretic for that might be used for things like hypertension. Mm. The leaf is like very mild, like urinary antiseptic. So it's also good for um, like like mild UTIs. Okay. Um, as sort of a general nutritive as a food. And then the roots are really effective medicines to stimulate bile production and excretion. So we have a term for that in herbal medicine called cholagogue. You know, the liver is kind of the one of the commanding organs of the body. It guides the, all the processes of elimination and detoxification. Like I know that that word detoxification gets a bad rap and people are skeptical about it, but it's nonetheless true that the body detoxifies right. poisons that it's exposed to or are produced endogenously. So the liver's job primarily to drive that and in turn regulates the, uh, that function on a cellular level. So it kind of has a sort of commanding influence. Like, so you imagine each cell has like a little mini liver, yeah. which is dependent on the function of the, of the actual physical liver. So the roots are used to, for that exact purpose to, to promote detoxification and to promote the excretion of bile. And, and that can benefit any type of blood problem or skin issue. The, the blood is purified by the liver. And it's said in Ayurveda that the skin is formed from the blood. So if you imagine that someone's got eczema or psoriasis, it's sort of visualized as kind of like a, a, a like a, a buildup, a metabolic detritus that builds up in the skin, like the scum that forms on the surface of a milk when you heat it. And so by purifying the blood via the liver, because that's what it's doing, it's filtering the blood, it's removing toxins from the blood, you're benefiting the skin. Okay. And that then that gets dumped in the bile. And then that bile is dumped into the into the intestine, into the small intestine, where it helps to emulsify fat, but it also has a peristaltic activity, so it stimulates bowel movements. So it also is good for constipation. And in particular, I use dandelion root for this sort of sense of pelvic congestion and heaviness. Very common for women to have that, especially around menstruation. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of PMS issues can be associated with like your liver just feeling kind of backed up, like there's no flow. Like a lot of women can relate to how that feels. You know, if your period's sort of starting, it's not fully starting, it feels like it's just kind of hanging on and, and you know, it'd be nice if it just like would start, you know? And so a herb like that actually facilitates that. Really? And you take that premenstrually, like say from day 14 until you start to menstruate. Uh, it's really good for dysmenorrhea, so for like p- painful menstruation, it's good for a lot of the PMS issues. You know, the liver is responsible for detoxifying hormones like estrogen. So the only way to get rid of the estrogen in your body is actually via the liver, excreted via the bile. Hmm. So it has so many key functions. You know, dandelion has like a lot of utility. It's a food. It's a medicine. It's beautiful. The root part's mm-hmm. valuable for that. How yes. do people, do they make, you make a tea out of it or? Yeah, you can make a tea out of it. I mean, a lot of what's popular is the dandelion coffee. And you just take the roots out. 
uh, wash them off and roast them in the oven at low temperature for a while until they're hard and brittle. And then just grind that up into a, into a powder. Mm-hmm. Finer the better. Um, and, then, and then just add hot water to that and then drink it like an instant coffee. And then you could buy that. I mean, you can spend a lot of money for the, on that, but you can, you know, everyone's got dandelion. Yeah, there's tons of them. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what actually what brought it up. I actually kind of hate them, but it's good to know. Yeah, well, if you, <laughs> so if you, but if you predate upon them, if you eat them, you know, then it, it, it kind of restores their balance. There's sort of one philosophy in my field that the, the plants, the weedy plants that grow around you in abundance are usually growing because they have some utility to you. They're like reminding you about some connection that you need to restore or, you know, like bring back into balance. Right. And, you know, when you think about like all of the health issues that people have, like all the properties of, of dandelion root that I just said could benefit so many people. Yes. You know, like chronic inflammation and, you know, um, menstrual disorders and it would benefit things like prostate problems, um, hypertension. So all these different things you know, and you're spending all this money on pharmaceuticals, you know, looking for solutions outside of your immediate sphere of influence, you might have medicines that are, you know, you consider to be noxious weeds, which are saying, hey, hey, I'm right here for you. Yeah. You know, and, and it, it, it suggests that, you know, we can take a view of nature and our relationship with it as, as a different nature can seem to our individual plight. Nature also has a nurturing side to it. Yeah. It wants us to live in balance and is constantly providing evidence of that for us. It just requires us to listen. Yeah. So if you have a lot of weeds growing in your garden, it might be just nature saying, I've got some medicine for you. I have a clue about how you can restore balance to your life. I actually always joke that all these disasters and stuff that are happening on the planet is Mother Nature saying, get out. Yeah, it's not. It's not a joke. I mean, that's how <laughs> traditional peoples viewed it, like that—that that there was this disordered relationship between the the, the human sphere of influence and in, in the natural world, and that's. I mean, that was the original function of a shaman was to mediate that relationship, and that's. And herbalists are drawn from that shamanic tradition. Hmm. So, yeah, I think that uh, you know, like with COVID, clearly COVID had all of these you know, causes related to living in a, in, in a state of imbalance, right? Like, yeah. even if it just means like the, 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 the in, in China, what was happening with like, just um, bringing, you know, wild animals into, a, into the wet markets, you know, wild animals that, you know, we should be living alone and they should be respecting the integrity of their ecosystems. We're just going in there and raping them essentially. Yeah. And then just exposing ourselves to these these pathogens that, that uh, formerly there was like some ecological protection from, um, but aren't when we just sort of, you know, aren't respecting those natural connections. That's been really interesting. My big passion in, in life, in my profession, is, is the field of Ayurveda, which is the classical system of healing from India. I've always been just so taken with that system of medicine. I mentioned earlier how traditional peoples had this kind of embodied wisdom contained within their relationship. Nowhere is this more evident than in a place like India, which has thousands of years of a continuously practiced culture. Of course, you know, we're all ancient peoples, you know, we can all draw back our origins to, you know, Africa. But in terms of maintaining like a continuity of culture, I mean, you and I, white people, we don't have our connection to, I don't know what your heritage is, but you're probably Northern European. But, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing you don't have any, like, deep connection with those ancient European traditions. No. Right? And But in India, people do. Right. Right? Like, they're living 
on the land of their of their ancestors. Like if, if you take a you know someone's home in like Varanasi, India, and you start digging in their living room, and you just keep digging down, you'll find all these cultural artifacts that you know through the layers of sediment that go back thousands of years. Right, like our indigenous exactly here, yeah. And so, and, and there's been some damage through colonization in India as well, but um, much less so than other parts of the world. Right. And so, they have this amazing system of knowledge that connects. They're things like spiritual practices, with mathematics, with astronomy, with like civil engineering, with medicine. Like they, they're all inspired from the same type of knowledge. And they're all extensions and from that basic knowledge and they're all interconnected. So it, it's just an amazing repertoire of knowledge that informs how you can move through life. And so it's just this amazing source of embodied knowledge. So Ayurveda literally means like the, the knowledge of life or the divine knowledge of life. So as a, as a physician, like you're not like you're not, it's not practicing medicine. You're just studying life. That's the goal is to study life and it's, and its various manifestations, which means that I also treat animals too. Like I treated dogs and cats and horses, even though I'm not trained as, as a vet per se, and it does, of course, require me to do some additional research. But just sort of understanding through the naturalistic principles of, like, the animal's diet and what they eat and, like, what I can do to restore balance. You know, like, I remember I had, um, I had a horse patient a few years ago who had an abscess in his groin mm. and had been treated for six months by vets to no avail. Like, it just wasn't getting better. And I remember going, visiting the horse and going into the stable and the horse was like, oh my God, another guy come look at my crotch. <laughs> and he was just like, he didn't want to show me his crotch. He kept moving away. Yeah. And, but finally I got a chance to look at it and, and, and then I, I prescribed a treatment and basically it was making what, what are, what's called a drawing poultice. And this is exclusive to Ayurveda. This is drawing upon some other, cause I, I don't practice strictly desirated, but also some Western herbal medicines and Chinese medicine. So I came up with a poultice. I actually used potato as the base of it and a few other herbs. Mm. Potato is a really good um, raw grated potato. is a really good drawing poultice. It draw it draws things to it. Okay. So we made a I had make a made a poultice and apply it. It took some work to actually apply it so it would stay. And I just had them do that every day. It took about like three or four weeks and the com- abscess completely resolved. And I remember going to visit the horse. And when he saw me, he got really excited. He was giving me kisses. And like he knew, even though I wasn't the one administering the treatment, but he knew that it was me that had come in and assessed him and had originated this treatment. Like he knew that. And he was really happy for me yeah. to look at his groin. It was like a really rewarding experience. So it's just an example of like how efficacious the medicine is but also if you kind of understand the basic principles of healing and you have some practical experience with that then you can apply it to many different other creatures and many different types of humans right you just need to understand the uniqueness of each person of each animal and then make sure that you modify your treatment as appropriate to that so ayurveda is this amazing system that provides all this deep understanding and a system which is just innately intelligent you were talking earlier about like science. You know, science is based on this model of quantification. You can't really conduct any science unless you obtain some data. Right. Right. You always hear that. I mean, there are the observational sciences, but they're not taken as seriously as like the data-driven sciences. Yeah. Because they're hard to quantify. Yeah. Right. But in Ayurveda, there's no measurement of anything. 
when a patient comes, there's no scale they stand on, there's no tape measure, there's no blood tests. Of course, I do all those things because I'm also trained in the science of it. It's all based on feeling. How do they feel? And by feeling, it doesn't mean like some kind of vague feeling. It means like qualitative differences. Ayurveda is based on like understanding qualities like hot and cold, heavy and light, wet and dry, and the patient expressing those qualities. So if someone has a lot of coldness, then visualize it as a disease or a, of coldness. So then we apply measures which are warming in nature to counterpose that. Okay. And that might require changing the local environment. It might mean taking different foods, using different herbs that have that type of property. So that when the patient comes back and you ask them, are you cold? And they're like, I'm not cold anymore. Don't know how to describe that as a disease per se. It's a qualitative symptom that we're trying to address through matching qualitative treatments. The beauty of that is, is that all of us know those qualities, but we don't necessarily know much about a disease name or a diagnostic sign like and or and just knowing the name of a disease doesn't mean that we know anything about it right and that's the problem with a lot of western medicine this is that you know people are sort of obsessed with getting a diagnosis you know like say skin disease you know skin diseases like there's so many different types of skin diseases a dermatologist is just like if they're skilled and you know they can just delineate all the different types and it's you discover like this different sort of taxonomy of different skin diseases and then give you a disease name but then give you steroids like they were going to give every other person like it doesn't differentiate any line of treatment. Right. But for us, when we look at the skin disease, we note characteristics like the like the color of it or like the temperature of it, the, the the symptoms associated with it, the symptoms that are generally associated, like other symptoms, like what their what's their digestion doing, like you know, do they get headaches or what time of day does it typically worsen, and kind of come up with a protocol based on all those different qualitative factors and apply a treatment based on that. Hmm. And then people innately feel better, right? It's uh, curious, like in Western medicine, it's, it's, you know, it's a case where like you can treat a patient and literally kill them and say you had a success in treatment. You know what I mean? Like if say you're treating someone's brain tumor, you know, you provide some kind of chemotherapy and radiation treatment and like you successfully reduce the tumor, but they ended up dying. Right. Still success. Um, or let's say someone has inflammatory bowel disease and so surgically resect the bowel. And that's cure. It's a treatment, you know. That's kind of a harsh cure, right? It is, like, yeah. It's like if you have a headache, it's like, well, just remove the head. That should solve the problem. <laughs> so, like, we just, we, we operate on a different paradigm than that. <laughs> you know, we want them to retain their head, retain their bowel. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the goal is that when you come back, you're feeling better. And that's usually reflected in all of the surrogate markers of disease, like their their hematology panel, etc. comes back, their x-rays come back. And yeah, it's definitely improved. But that's not the orientation. Like I'm not trying to like when someone comes to me with like dyslipidemia, I'm not treating the dyslipidemia. I'm not trying to change the numbers on their on their blood test. I'm trying to deal with the underlying cause. And when I do that, then the dyslipidemia resolves itself. Hmm. So it's it's a very complementary paradigm because I still am trained in the science. I still look at all those hematology panels. I still look at that scientific information. I still find it's useful. It allows me to kind of step out and ob observe things objectively. Right. But what we're trying to do is get the patient to a state of subjective wellness. So if we just use objective criteria, it's very difficult to achieve that. And that's the big disconnect in medicine is that you can treat someone's UTI with antibiotics, but, you know, why are they coming back two months later with another UTI? Right. You know, because we haven't dealt with the underlying qualitative imbalance. We yeah. just wiped out the bacteria, and we don't have any more bacteria, so therefore you're cured, but then it just keeps coming back. That makes sense. 
Yeah. So Ayurveda is about, you know, it's, it's there's, if you're familiar with this term called uh, Dharma. No. Dharma. It's, it has a religious or a spiritual co- context. So like Buddhists talk about the, the Dharma. Uh, it means like the teaching of Buddhism. But in Ayurveda, Dharma means the natural way of things. Okay. That there's a natural flow. Yeah. And that this is really what healing is all about, is to align ourselves with these natural principles. You know, so that you, for example, there's a practice in Ayurveda called Dinacharya. Dinacharya means to follow the day. It means that you structure the way you live each day according to the signals you get from the natural environment. And they're pretty intuitive. The reason why they're less intuitive now is because we live in a modern society with electric light. So you can stay up late in the morning, Mm. you know, sorry, stay up late at night and then sleep in in the morning. Whereas if you're, you know, you're living on a farm, you're camping, you're up with the sun, generally. You just are, right? Like you don't have the blackout curtains and the (laughs) covers over your eyes, then, you know, it's really hard to do that. But when you get up first thing in the morning, I mean, ideally you want to get up with the sun. And then the sun in Ayurveda represents the heat energy of the body. We all have like a little sun inside of us. We have all have a little fire inside of us. And that fire comes from the sun. And so as the sun gets higher in the sky, that heat energy in our body gets increased. And that relates to our digestion. Mm. So as, we, as the sun gets higher in the sky, if we haven't eaten yet by around noon, we're hungry. We're ready to eat. Yeah. And that's when Ayurveda recommends you have your, your largest meal on the ascent of that curve. And then as the sun begins to set towards the horizon, it's recommended to have another meal, but not so big. Because now the heat energy of your body and in the environment is starting to decline. So Ayurveda would say, have a big meal in the beginning of the day and a smaller meal at the end of the day. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, most cultures have this idea of like, you know, eating like a king or a queen and dining like a pauper. Mm-hmm. It's just, it reflects a naturalistic relationship with the environment. But what most people do is they eat a light breakfast, they snack during the day and they come home and they have a massive dinner and then sit in front of the TV with a pint of ice cream. Mm-hmm. Right. And then wonder why they're not hungry in the morning and why they're gaining weight and why their metabolism sucks and why they got thyroid problems. And, you know, now they got heart disease. And Stop eat. talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> fix you pretty quick so so the thing is like if you kind of flip the script and kind of look for the inspiration in the natural environment and natural rhythms and cycles it will inform how we live our lives right and how to like restore balance to our lives so ayurveda is all about that it's all about looking for those cues and clues in the natural environment to bring ourselves back into a state of balance so that's what's meant by dharma okay and so that's the that's what I'm trying to do as a, as a as a practitioner as a as a physician of the Ayurveda is to is to teach that concept and employ it to whatever extent that you want. I mean, I'm not I'm realistic. I mean, you know, the I'm not trying to turn people into you know like wise sages. I mean, everyone just just needs to live their regular life. But isn't it nice to know how you can live a life like free of a lot of impediment? You know, it just it just allows for an easier life. And then you can decide to what extent you want to practice this dinacharya because it can be very involved. You know, there's a whole series of things that you can do, all these, this routine that you can follow. So I teach that. And then, you know, I have my patients. There's some basic ones like getting up early, having a breakfast, which is kind of rich in protein and fat. Make sure you're getting exercise early in the day before noon. That helps to reset your serotonin levels. So you think of things like sleeping, like insomnia. A lot of people have issues with insomnia, which is a characteristically modern disease. Not something that's so common in traditional cultures for people to have insomnia. Hmm. 
For example, a lot of insomnia can be related to people just not getting enough exercise earlier in the day. When you get exercise, your serotonin levels increase. And they should naturally increase, like your serotonin levels naturally follow the path of the sun. So your serotonin levels are going to peak when the sun is at its zenith and then decline thereafter. So if you're like living your life according to that same flow of energy, you'll rebalance your serotonin levels and you know, it'll help deal with problems like depression. So Ayurveda says when you get up in the morning and you've got all this heaviness and from sleep, you want to like shake it off by like engaging in some kind of physical exercise. It removes all of the the kind of metabolic wastes that have accumulated while you've been sleeping. It kind of clears them out. It activates your digestion so you can eat a big meal and really nourish yourself. And then, you know, as you make your way through the day and then the sun begins to get closer to the horizon as it begins to set and your energy levels begin to decline, kind of makes you a little bit sleepy. And then, you know, you go to bed, hopefully, you know, by 10 o'clock or something and your serotonin levels are really, really low. And so then you fall asleep and, and, and low serotonin levels allows you to enter into REM state. Hmm. But in a lot of people with sleep problems, they don't, they don't get past REM state. They don't get into the deep sleep. So what we've observed is, is that Actually, after the REM state, there is this burst of serotonin that drives you into deep sleep. So you need a little bump of serotonin, like a secondary bump of serotonin. It's like an echo. So you have the initial big wave of serotonin during the day, and then a little secondary bump of serotonin that drives you into deep sleep. So you can explain this, like the, the neurobiology of it, you can explain it. Ayurveda would just say, it's 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 like an energetic qualitative thing which is that you want to follow the sun you know you want to be active and dynamic in the middle of the day and, and shake off all that congestion during the day and then in turn it'll help you sleep at night hmm. or just like urinary disorders ayurveda says that first thing in the morning you should drink like around 750 ml of water and so like a lot of people have problems like peeing having to get up and pee at night a lot of people have like sensitives sensitive bladders, you know, where they're trying to sleep and their bladder fills up a little bit and they got to get up and they got to go pee. Yeah. So what Ayurveda suggests is you drink all this water first thing in the morning and you stretch out your bladder so it's really full and then it just collapses upon itself as you excrete all that water and it, it sets it sets your bladder for the rest of the day. So have stretching out your bladder first thing in the morning and allowing it to collapse means that your bladder is less sensitive. And then that's basically a cure for a lot of people that have like nocturia, like having to pee at night. Lots of elderly people have lot, that issue. Yeah. Right? And I mean, yeah. there's other reasons, like there's prostate problems and there might be chronic UTIs and all those things need to be addressed. Yeah. But just as a basic approach, having that big, a, a big, a couple glasses of water first thing in the morning, it just regulates bladder function for the rest of the day. Hmm. And can is sort of an end run around some of these issues. And I've definitely had many patients over the years that you know, that's the main thing that we do and their bladder issues resolve or partially resolve. And then if that doesn't do it, then, you know, there may be other reasons why that we need to address, but we address those basic things first, you know, to remove potential obstructions by aligning themselves with these natural cycles and rhythms and then see what washes out. And, and then if there's stuff that is still there, then we can, we can treat that. We know it isn't like caused because of being out of alignment. Right. So do you, are you seeing patients here in Powell River? I am. You know, I, I came up here in 2019. I was just getting to know people. I've been doing like online consultations for many years already. And I went away to teach 
in um, Nepal. Like I bring students to Nepal periodically. I, I work with a family of hereditary physicians. Their family has been practicing Ayurveda for 800 years. Holy cow. And I bring students over there to study with them. Wow. So that's what I had done in early 2020 as I went to Nepal with a, with a bunch of students and we were there for, for five weeks and then I extended my trip a little bit. And, but I got caught up with COVID there. Mm-hmm. I actually got, I got stuck in their lockdown. So I actually ended up spending another almost month being trapped in India and I had to charter a flight to get out of there. Oh my goodness. But anyway, you know, when I came back yeah, in the middle of COVID, I just didn't, I just didn't have the ability to kind of connect with people. Yeah. So that's just happening now. So I'm just starting to start to see new patients, you know, because I the, the way to build a practice is like not to spend a lot of money on advertising. It's just it's just word of mouth and getting to know people. Yeah. And that's just that's what I'm just trying to do now. Just do some outreach. And I'm I'm fortunate I can have a little more of a casual approach to that because I, I do so many things, other things like I teach and I, I write books and I. Um, I have patients like internationally and um, I do some product development. And so, but I, my heart is really in seeing patients. That That's where I, I get the most satisfaction is out of helping people. Yeah. That is the most rewarding part. So I'm looking forward to doing more of that. And what I've been able to do in Powell River is have like a sliding scale. Because obviously folks here don't have as much money as people do in the city. And I'm really aware of healthcare costs. And so I have a lot of flexibility in that. I had my price that I charged in Vancouver, which was quite steep. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't think I could afford to see myself, you know, like it's like 250 bucks for initial 90 minute consultation and 180 for a follow up. But here in Powell River, it's like um, 90 and 60 mm. as a starting, you know, and then I have flexibility even beyond that. I, I've seen a number of folks that, that I haven't charged them at all. So it's, but that's, that's, that's the thing that interests me most, I think is, is helping people. That's really nice. Yeah. Yeah, and it's I guess the only limitation, as I said, is that it is entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. and I I wish that it was better recognized by society. Like we could save the healthcare system so much money. Aspirin is just uh, salicylic acid. It's ubiquitous in many plants, like cottonwood and meadowsweet and um, uh, willow. You probably heard about willow for you know like um, for body pain, for joint pain and stuff. It works. Effective. It brings down your fever, and that's been known for thousands of years that these plants have that property. The Bayer Drug Company did in the late 1800s is they took the salicylic acid and they stuck an acetyl group onto it to create a novel compound, which they then marketed as aspirin. Mm. The only problem with it was is that the acetyl group made it toxic. So uh, ASA, we we know that ASA has some toxic effects, like it it irreversibly kills platelets, which is why it's being used to treat people that are a higher risk of stroke that have uh, that have kind of sticky blood that produce too many platelets usually because of some kind of underlying inflammatory disorder so instead of treating that you know and resolving the issue in their diet they'll just give them aspirin or baby aspirin and say it's a little prevent your stroke but it messes up your gut mm. you know it it, it can um it, it's sort of toxic to your liver that's a really good example of like a natural product that we've manipulated turned into a pharmaceutical and it's not any more effective. The only reason it was modified is so it could be a proprietary substance. Right. Science has a really hard time processing and understanding is like, we don't even know what one drug does, all the different things that it does. And then you take another substance and put it together. And then what those two things do, I mean, just think of all the pharmaceuticals that people take. And as you get older, they put you on higher and higher doses and with more and more different drugs. So your average senior citizen's taking like five or six different drugs that are working in ways which we have no idea. Yeah. 
you know, and creating all these different side effects. So, I mean, the positive aspect of that in herbal medicine is, is that and you can have like a, a, a plant compound that exerts a particular property and then accessory plant compounds that work synergistically with it to enhance its property. So a good example of that, we have a plant you might be familiar with called organ grape. Okay. You know organ grape root? Yeah. Yeah. People harvest the berries to make jelly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's got these beautiful blueberries. Uh, they're really, really tart. Well, the plant... If you ever, if we were out in the forest, I would show you. But if you dig around the the, the, the base of the plant where, where it form, starts to form into roots and you peel away the bark, you'll see a yellow color in the bark. That's a, that's mostly attributable to an alkali called berberine. Berberine is a highly antibiotic compound. Like it kills bacteria really effectively. Uh, so you theoretically should be able to use it to treat infection. But what has happened is over millions of years is bacteria have learned to adapt to that berberine. And so a lot of bacteria have what are called berberine pumps. And so the berberine accumulates inside their little bodies and they can ex- they have these pumps to excrete it back out. Right. And so it's just, it's, you know, this is like this slowly evolving uh, war between plants and bacteria, you know, and now the bacteria, you know, are, are one up yeah. on, on the plant. The plant is, doesn't like think, okay, I just need to like start over. It's like, well, I need to make that more more effective. So then it was discovered relatively recently that, that organ grape also produces another compound called 5-methoxyhydrocarbon that blocks those berberine pumps. So the bacteria can't pump out the berberine. It accumulates and it kills it. Now, if you were doing a, an assay and you were looking for antimicrobial compounds and you were to take this isolated compound, 5-methoxyhydrocarbon, and you were to like assay and test it, it wouldn't exert any antibacterial property. You would observe no antibacterial property for that compound. It's the berberine which is antimicrobial, but because it blocks those berberine pumps, it enhances and potentiates the, the activity of the, of the berberine. And that's just one compound. And your average herb has got about 800 different secondary metabolites <laughs> that are working in ways we have no idea that are impossible to actually categorize except from a traditional herbal perspective where we can say what the qualities are. This herb is drying, it's cooling in nature, it's anti-inflammatory, it's good for the liver, it's good for the skin, it's good for the blood. There are all the different indications for it and how to use it. It's an amazing wealth of knowledge. Mm-hmm. But you take that and then you try to fit that into the medical system and doctors are like, well, I don't know. I don't know what it does. Like, there's no evidence on it. Like, there's no data on it. It's like, you know, and, and then it's so complicated. Like, what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with like, what, what, what's the active ingredient? It's like, there's no one active ingredient. Right. It's like in your life, it's like, is, you know, is there just like one person who's just the only important person in your life or just the one event in your life that makes everything else happen? It's, it's a synergy of all these different factors. That's life. I wrote a book called Food is Medicine. I've got a crappy website from 2010, which I need to replace because you can definitely tell it's from 2010. But the book, you know, I wrote that book quite a long time ago because what I learned was is that patients weren't likely to get better if they didn't know anything about their diet. There's just it was too much inertia in their habits and what they're eating that if they couldn't figure that out, then the medicine just seemed like very unnecessary or very accessory to the issue. So the book Food is Medicine is meant to articulate that. And it doesn't mean that there's like one approach that fits everyone. A lot of, you know, diet books out there, they've got one angle. It's right. a vegan diet, it's a low carb diet, it's, you know, it's it's um, the lectin diet. It's, it's all those things are important and maybe applicable given the individual. But you know, you have to be able to discern, how to figure that out. Right. You know, like definitely vegan diets, not good for lots of people. 
Mm-hmm. And it's probably not good for most people on a regular basis, um, but could be beneficial for some people for a short time. Right. You know, especially if they're coming from a really unhealthy, meat-laden diet full of fried food and bread and alcohol, you know, going on a three-month vegan diet can be absolutely transformative. But a lot of women end up on a, young women end up on a vegan diet and they start losing their period. They start experiencing impairments in bone density. They start just feeling frazzled and anxious and don't put two and two together that that diet isn't nourishing them. And so that's why I wrote the book was is that so people could kind of figure all these things out and understand that there's just a cornucopia of options that are out there. Right. And, you know, it, it does take a little bit of time and experience to figure those things out. But if you're if you employ those natural principles and have an open minded attitude and approach, then you can figure that stuff out and surprisingly just optimize your health Not to the extent that your health will ever be perfect. Right? Like, there's no such thing as perfection in this world. Right. Perfection yep. is for amateurs anyway, right? Like, <laughs> right? Like, there's it's for people that start recording the podcast when they're supposed to and <laughs> That's stuff right. like well, that, right? Well, there's, you know, just, <laughs> there's things that we discussed that probably wouldn't have discussed if that hadn't happened. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, the goal is to just empower people so they can make these informed decisions. And as I said, reconnect their healing potential with the abundant potential of healing that is just that just manifest in the natural environment well thank you so much for your time today my pleasure a pleasure to get to know you yeah thank you thank you you. what an interesting interview i had with todd and i have to really thank him for his patience for the first time i'd forgotten to hit record at the start of the interview and unfortunately we missed some good content when we went over but as todd said in the interview there was plenty of things we talked about that i think maybe we wouldn't have if that little glitch hadn't happened so hopefully in the future i will remember to hit record if you want to check out more about todd or see some links to his books some posts and he's got a a store for some of his herbal medicine and his clinic and his retreats his website is toddcaldicott.com. That's T-O-D-D-C-A-L-D-E-C-O-T-T dot com. That's T-O-D-D-C-A-L-D-E-C-O-T-T dot com. Thanks again, Todd, for your patience and joining me in the studio in a very hot July. Listeners will probably pick up some background noise that unfortunately I get in the summer because the window has to be open. So until next time, this is Aaron Reed. Thanks for listening to Coastal Currents with Aaron Reed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information about the podcast, visit www.coastalcurrents.ca or follow us on Facebook at Coastal Currents with Aaron Reed. If you'd like to submit a topic or join the conversation as a guest, email Aaron at coastalcurrentswitharen at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening.